0: Ron, I want to thank you and choir and instrumentalists for all of the hard work that you have done in preparing such special music for us this glorious Resurrection Sunday. Didn't they do a good job, huh? Yeah. Well, I want to add my welcome to those that have gone before, to you, our guests. It's a special day. We're so pleased to have you with us as we gather to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to speak to you this morning about the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and it is like a perfectly formed diamond glistening in the sunlight. It doesn't matter how you turn it. Each and every facet is has its own breathtaking luminance. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you and you would want to find page 1152, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians 15. 3 through 5. And as we look at these verses this morning, we will briefly examine four facets of the gospel so that we understand and believe its life changing message. Four facets of the gospel given to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. Follow along, please, as I read. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The first facet that I want to look at this morning with you is what I call the priority of the gospel. The priority of the gospel included in your worship bulletin this morning. There is a handout and you can follow along with that if you like. The whole structure is there for you. The priority of the gospel and it's here in verse three where the Apostle Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. He says first importance. Importance. What Paul is communicating here to this Corinthian assembly is not new information. He is reminding them of that which he had done when he had been among them originally. He's calling these things back to their mind because in their foolishness, they had begun to drift from some of these essential truths of the gospel. So he says to them that I delivered to you of what is of first importance. It's a reference here to both time and priority. When Paul first arrived in Corinth and he began preaching to the people, he had only one message to give them. Only one piece of information to deliver to them. It was a life-changing message. It was a message that he had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to go and deliver to the ends of the earth, he and the other apostles. You'll remember that great commission passage it occurs at the end of matthew's gospel where they are gathered to jesus there on the mount and jesus tells them in his final appearance there with them go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i commanded you and lo i am with you always even to the end of the age. Go into all the world, he says, and deliver this message. Make disciples, teaching them that which I have commanded you. On the day in which he ascended back to the right hand of the Father to the throne of glory, he left his disciples there in Acts chapter one and verse eight, and said to them, You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of of the earth it is a message of priority it is a message that is designed to go out to the very ends of the earth and the reason it has such priority is because as the scripture says there is salvation in no other name for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved beloved this is a message of priority do you remember back uh, about 12 years ago to the great Northridge earthquake? you remember how when the earth convulsed that morning, there was a section of a freeway overpass that collapsed, leaving a gaping hole in the road? Suppose you were the first to come upon such a catastrophe. What would you do? How would you respond? I dare say you would probably in those early dawn hours, do everything you possibly could to create a traffic jam, a, a tie-up, to somehow prevent cars from proceeding down that freeway to be plunged to certain death and destruction. But why would you do that? What would give you the authority to do that such things? What about the inconvenience you would cause to all of those motorists What about the angry response that would come to you as you jammed up the freeway and they were no longer able to go to work or pleasure? You would still do it, wouldn't you? You would still clog that freeway. And the reason you would do it is because of the priority of the message that you have. Freeway out. Do not proceed. Death and destruction await you. Beloved, the same is true of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, people are busy speeding along the highway of life, heading towards certain destruction. And the priority is for somebody to tell them. The Bible is very clear. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, It is appointed for men to die once, and then the judgment. There is a certain death awaiting each and every one of us. And at the moment of death, we stand before our Creator in judgment. There is a priority to the gospel message because people are dying and judgment awaits them. Beyond that, there is another facet of the gospel beyond its priority, and that is its transcendence. Its transcendence. Again, look at verse 3. Notice the Apostle says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I delivered to you what I received. He reminds them that the gospel message is not a human invention. It is not something that is the product of man's religious aspirations. But it is a divinely revealed solution to man's most desperate predicament. All people, All people, no matter how well educated they are, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how socially refined they are, nor does it matter whether they are ignorant and poor and crude. The reality is they have a pressing problem. A pressing problem. And that is that they are continually violating God's holy standard. In their lives, in their conversations, in their thoughts, Their deeds, they continue to violate what God has established. They they insist on trying to live their own lives without loving or submitting to their Creator. They're insistent upon living independently, fashioning instead gods of their own making, drawing them out as a product of their vain imaginings. Beloved, the Bible calls this sin. The Bible has a word for this. It calls it sin and the result of sin is alienation from your creator. All other religions, all other world religions except biblical Christianity are at best simply man's effort to an attempt to reach up to a God of his own making and design. Some are primitive some are very complex. But they are fundamentally based upon self-effort. Pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. Attempting to reach out, assuming a spark of goodness somehow resides in the human soul and it is merely a matter of fanning, of fanning it into flame. And then they will be right before their Creator. The problem with such notions is that it runs Directly contrary to the very word of God. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible also says that there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for the true God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Jesus Himself said and recorded for us in Mark's Gospel, gospel, chapter 7, verses 21 and following. He says it is from within. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. Beloved, it is a desperate situation. It is a desperate situation for the heart is corrupt. And the best we can do is touched with that corruption and thus unacceptable before a holy God and Creator. We need a transcendent solution. We need a solution from the outside to come in. As sinners, we are like fish swimming in the sea, surrounded by seawater and yet totally unaware of the fact that they are all wet. They need someone from the outside to come in and say, you are drowning, you are surrounded in your sin." The solution to man's problem has to come from outside of himself. Outside of himself and to come in. It must be revealed to him by God himself. This he did. First in the, through the prophets of the, of the Old Testament, recorded for us on the pages of the Old Testament, and then most fully in his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Who left the throne room of glory to come to earth, to take to himself human flesh, to walk and live among mankind and to reveal the glory of the Father. John says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus himself said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus then commissioned a small group of followers, a small group of men to be his witnesses, to go into all the world with a priority message that had come from heaven to earth to explain to mankind how they can be made right with their creator. That message was commissioned to be spread far and wide. The Apostle Paul, the same one who recorded this passage for us here in 1 Corinthians, speaking of the gospel message himself, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Look again at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you what I also received, Paul passed on what had come to him from the outside. Beloved, no human being, no human being was alive at the moment of creation. Nor has any human being passed beyond the grave to come back and tell us what it is like. We have no knowledge of either the beginning nor the end. We are like a blind person. Groping in a room with neither door nor window, searching for an exit. We need someone to come from the outside of that room and deliver us. We need a transcendent message from on high. We need the one who was both there at creation and inhabits eternity to tell us what it requires to be made right with him. We need the revelation. Of God to come to us. Beloved, we need a deliverer. We need a deliverer. And that deliverer is the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is a message of priority. This is a message of priority. Because there is salvation nowhere else. This is a message of transcendence. Because it does not well up from within. It comes to us from without. Third facet, I'm calling the content of the gospel. The content of the gospel in very simple terms here. The apostle, verses 3 and 4, he outlines the content of the gospel. Many think this was an early Christian catechism a primitive confession that would be taught even to the very young within the early days of Christianity. That which they could memorize and confess and and encapsulate the very basic elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at it again, verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There are in those verse and a half there... Three truths captured. Three simple statements that are absolutely loaded with theology, loaded with metaphysical reality. There we are told that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that He was buried and on the third day He arose. Beloved, that is the gospel message. In its most simple and primitive form, that is the gospel message. And that first truth is that Christ died for our sins. It is a reminder to those Corinthian believers and to us as well that Christ, that is Messiah, that is Deliverer, died for their sins. To die on behalf of another person's sins, in the language of the Scriptures, is to die in the place of someone else it is to die on behalf of another person it is the death of the innocent on behalf of the guilty it is the language of sacrifice it is the biblical language of sacrifice and what it does is brings to mind the whole old testament sacrificial system you will remember that that system which was based on the reality of an innocent and spotless lamb brought to the temple of God where it would be slain in the place of a guilty sinner. That it's by its death, by the pouring out of its blood, the just penalty for sin could be met for the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Sin mandates death because sin is a violation of the ordinance of a holy creator. And so in the Old Testament system, an innocent lamb would come, a spotless one, would come and would spill its blood or have its blood spilled on behalf of those who were defiled with sin. Now, the Bible is very clear to tell us that the death of that innocent animal could never really atone for sin. It could never really extinguish the sin. It could never really take away the guilt before our holy creator. It would merely cover it or postpone it for a time. And in that annual death of a lamb was a constant reminder that we are separated from our creator, that we are defiled in sin, that sin inhabits every every part of our being And that the mandate is death. The wages of sin is death. And so the whole sacrificial system was a constant reminder. It was like a neon sign. Sinner, sinner, sinner. Death is what you deserve. Death is what you will receive. The people longed for a solution. The people of God longed for a means and a way in which their sin could be finally put away, finally dealt with when the guilt could finally be extinguished. Who could take it away? How could it be taken away forever? This was the longing of the human heart. The Apostle Paul says again, look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul says it was the death of Christ Christ. The word Christ, is the Greek word, it, it's a, it means Messiah, it means deliverer, it means the coming one. And Paul says it was Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures. Meaning that it had been predicted in the scriptures. It had been called for be, many years before in the very word of God. It had been the longing of the people of God. They longed for the reality of one who would come and take away their sin. What scriptures? What Old Testament scriptures laid out this coming deliverer? Oh, there are many for sure. But let me call your attention to a couple. Let me take you back mentally to the very beginning. Back to Genesis. Back to the very beginning of the scriptures. And indeed, back to the very beginning of humanity. When there in the garden, those first people, Adam and Eve, created without sin, chose to willfully violate their Creator's decree to them. And they took of the forbidden fruit, and they ate, and they plunged themselves and their race into ruination. They valued their own independence, their own decision-making, their own ability to determine good from evil, right from wrong, higher than the word of the very One who had created them. And thus they ate of that fruit. And when Adam tasted of that fruit, he plunged his race into ruination. For if you, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. He had been told. But God was gracious. God was merciful to both Adam and to those of us, and that is all of us in this room, because we are the offspring of that one. God came to them there, and He spoke in Genesis chapter three and in verse. 15, and he promised a deliverer. Speaking through the serpent to the one who energized that serpent, Satan himself, the enemy of our human soul, he said to him that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God spoke prophetically. God said there would come a deliverer. And the Deliverer would engage in mortal combat with Satan, the enemy of our soul, the one who had deceived and enticed those first parents into ruination. And he said that the evil one would strike what appeared to be a mortal blow, a blow to the heel, but it would not be mortal. Instead, that Deliverer, that promised one, would crush the serpent's head. And so there in in the garden, so many thousands and thousands of years ago, The prophecy was given that a deliverer was coming. There would be a future one, one who could break the effect of sin, one who could forever and once and for all atone and take away the guilt of Adam's race. Well, we fast forward several thousand years and there in Egypt, the nation of Israel is in bondage and slavery. They had been called down into Egypt, 70 persons in all. And by now, 400 years later, they have grown to a race of two and a half million people. But their Egyptian taskmasters have been harsh and cruel with them. And they have called out for deliverance. They have cried out to their God and God has sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And there Moses took on the gods of Egypt And in a display of the power of the creator God of the universe, the false gods of the Egyptians were thwarted. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and his people. Listen to what he said, Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, each one, that is each household of the Israelites, is to take a lamb for themselves and kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Beloved, this is the institution of the Passover that great Jewish festival that was celebrated just last week. This is the first origination of that Passover celebration and ceremony, the deliverance of the people of God when the blood of an innocent lamb was spilt and placed upon the doorway of the house in order that the death angel of God would pass over that house. Well, when Jesus died on that cross, the scripture says that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was that greater lamb. He was the one who fulfilled that which the innocent lamb foreshadowed, that which the whole Passover ceremony points to, that the death of an innocent lamb and the spilling of its blood provided protection to the people of God. So in a greater and and fuller and perfect way, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on behalf of His people atones for their sins. Permanently, Extinguishes their guilt. The death, eternal death, would pass over them. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Just as the Word of God had prophesied. Secondly, verse 4, He was buried. Do you see that? He was buried. Beloved, all four gospel accounts provide eyewitness record of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important piece of the gospel message for this certifies the reality of his death. This tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really did die on that cross. And thus sets the stage for this beautiful resurrection morning. Jesus Christ did not swoon on that cross. He did not faint from loss of blood. He did not somehow pass out later to revive in the cold and damp darkness of the garden tomb. No, Jesus Christ was dead. The gospel is very clear. Pilate, when the Roman centurion came to him to report the death of Jesus Christ, Pilate investigated him closely in order to know that he died. And when he was convinced, he released the body. For burial. Jesus Christ died. A dead corpse was laid in that garden tomb. The the stone was rolled in front. The body was lifeless and hopeless. And at that moment in time, the processes of decay would begin to set in. Yet on resurrection morning, three days later, it was not some spiritual renewal that happened. It was the reanimation of a dead body come to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, Jesus voluntarily surrendered his life on that cross. That the sin of his people, that the wrath of Almighty God the Father would be extinguished in that moment in time. He was Died according to our sins, he was buried. Third verse four, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the, the first two truths here that, that's communicated to us that Jesus died for our sins and that he was buried are communicated grammatically in a simple past tense verb form. He died, it says, he was buried. But when the Apostle Paul comes to this third truth that he was raised on the third day, he changes verb tenses here. And what he does by, by doing that is communicate a profound reality to us. From a simple past tense verb, he, he, can, he changes to what's called a perfect tense verb in a passive voice. Now, not getting lost in the, in the grammar of it all, it has massive significance for us. A perfect tense Greek verb communicates action in the past with ongoing uh, implications. An action in the past with ongoing implications. Look again, verse 4. He was raised in the past and he remains resurrected today. That's what's being communicated to us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and beloved, he is alive today, amen? He is our living Lord. Apostle also uses a passive voice with this verb and a passive voice just means that the subject is the recipient of the action of the verb. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. The scripture is unanimous in that testimony that is God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and the resurrection of Jesus Christ performed by the power of, of God the Father has incredible implications for us today. What are those, what are those implications? What is the significance that it, Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God the Father? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Now I'm going to give you an answer to it. It's really a twofold answer the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the power of God the Father is God's stamp of approval upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ had died for his own sin, he would have remained dead. For that indeed is what happens. Sinners die and remain dead. It is appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment. But Jesus Christ, the sinless one was resurrected from the dead because in the words of the Scripture, God will not allow His Holy One to undergo decay. God would not permit the sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the triune Godhead, to remain in the ground to undergo decay. God's vindication of the life and the message of Jesus Christ is certified by His resurrection from the dead on the very night in which he was betrayed, a mere hours before he was led to that cross for crucifixion, Jesus Christ made the most incredibly bold statement possible. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man goes to the Father except by me. Well, that's a bold statement to make. And it's a statement that is certified and guaranteed by the Father's resurrection of such a one. Were that statement not true, beloved, Jesus would have been a liar. And liars do not rise from the dead. God resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ because his statement was absolutely 100%. Go to the bank with it. True. There is no way to God other than through Jesus Christ. But beyond that, the Apostle Paul, even in this same chapter of chapter 15, beginning over in verse 20 and following, we won't turn there to to exposit that section. We have not the time, but there the Apostle Paul adds a further reason for God's resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he communicates to us over there is that Jesus Christ is the first fruit. The first fruit. He is the fountain of a new humanity. Now stay with me on this one. Back in the garden... Adam and Eve fell into sin. And when Adam plunged into sin, he took the race down with him. All of us were conceived in sin. All of us were born in sin. All of us are are thoroughly washed in our sin. We are dead in our sin and our trespasses, spiritually speaking. And so the race has been ruined. There needs to be a new race, a race fitted to live with God for eternity. And that new race In the fountainhead of Jesus Christ, it is as Jesus was resurrected from the dead that those who have by faith embraced his sacrifice on their behalf also follow along with him in the resurrection from the dead. I don't know about you, but that makes me pretty excited. That I know that I will live forever with God. That my alienation from my Creator has been broken. That I am no longer separated from Him. That there is no longer enmity between us. That I am now no longer imprisoned in the kingdom of darkness, but I am an adopted child of God. A humanity, the Apostle Paul says over in Galatians, represents. Individuals from all ethnic groups, all social classes, male nor female, there is no advantage. We all come before the cross on level ground. We all become a new humanity constituted in Jesus Christ. And we know that to be true because God raised him from the dead. Notice again, verse 4 that he was raised the third day. It says, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Again, there is a a vast wealth of biblical statements that prefigure the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you but two of them. First one I've quoted for you already, Psalm 16, verse 10. God will not allow His Holy One to undergo decay. And then over in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 9, the prophet writes, 700 years before the death of Jesus Christ, he said, His grave will be assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He was assigned a grave with wicked men, it says. He was dead and yet he will see His own offspring. He will see that new constituted humanity in which He is the fountainhead. He will look upon those who He has redeemed. They are His children. The Old Testament is replete with prophecy and reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this diamond has priority. This diamond is transcendent. This diamond is loaded with the reality of how one comes to be made right with their creator. And lastly, there is veracity to this gospel. There is truthfulness to this gospel. It's a legitimate question to ask. How do I know that the gospel is true? Pastor, you've been standing up here and you've been talking away about the gospel and saying what it is and and what it can do and how it can make me right before God, but how do I know it's true? That's a legitimate question to ask. It's a question you should ask. One should not base one's eternal destiny upon something he's not sure is true. So how do we know it's true? Look at verse 5. The apostle answers that by providing two lines of evidence. He speaks to them very quickly and very simply. First, he he speaks of the scriptures. Actually, verse 3, verse 4, right? According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. You see it? The first line of evidence, the first way that I know that the message is true is because it is supported by, it is explained in, it is laid out in the holy scriptures of every word of God. It is the scriptures that specifically predict the death, burial, resurrection of Messiah. Thousands of years before the event. In fact, 1,000 years before the event, in the most intricate detail, it was predicted. No merely human book could foresee such a thing. No merely human book could, would be able to take into account all the contingencies necessary to provide that kind of accurate projection and prediction of the future. No crystal ball. It's possible to see with such clarity. Beyond that, beloved, only a sovereign God. Only a sovereign God could so order the events of mankind in order to assure the prophecy to come true. Think with me for a moment what contingencies would be necessary in order for an event predicted a thousand years before its occurrence to come to pass in the exact minute detail in which the Scripture predicts such things. We can't even tell what the weather will be tomorrow. How could we possibly predict such things listen to what the psalmist said david the great king of israel a thousand years before this he writes they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that was minutely fulfilled in the crucifixion when four roman soldiers divided the garments of the lord jesus christ and then his seamless inner tunic not wanting to tear it and render it worthless, cast lots that one might take it home. Only a sovereign God could ensure that such a minute prophecy would be fulfilled in complete detail. So there is the evidence of the Scriptures according to the Scriptures. That's how we know the gospel's true. Second line of evidence is eyewitness testimony, verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That first Easter Sunday morning, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Cephas. That's an Aramaic word that, that means Peter. He appeared to the apostle Peter. He appeared to him in resurrected form. He spoke with him. And Peter is his eyewitness. Beyond that, he appeared to the 12, it says, verse 5. That is that he appeared that night to a small, frightened band of followers, huddled in an upper room, behind locked doors, the Scripture tells us, for fear of the Jews, for fear that they would be arrested and suffer the same fate as their master. These were not bold evangelists. These were fearful men. These were fearful men. And yet that when Jesus appeared to them, their life was transformed. They went from being a fearful huddled mass to, the, to a bold evangelistic army that went out and turned the Roman world upside down. They made known to all that salvation was available in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ if one would repent of their sin and believe that his death was on their behalf to save them from their transgressions. This small, frightened band became irrepressible evangelists, sealing their testimony with their own blood. And beloved, we sit here. We sit here because of their efforts on our behalf 2,000 years ago. That little message, that little band began to grow and grow and grow until it turned the world upside down. They are our eyewitness testimony. The truth. Listen to how one of them, writing towards the very end of his life, the Apostle John, he speaks of such things, for in first John chapter one and verse one, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. What he says is that we have fellowship with God, the father through Jesus Christ. And we invite you to join that fellowship as you commit yourself to the reality of the message that we preach. You will enter into that new humanity and have fellowship with God as well. This gospel message is so powerful, so beautiful. It is like a diamond with multiple facets. It is a message of priority. It is a message of transcendence. It is a message loaded with content by which a person can be made right with God. It is a message that is entirely true. Beloved, it is of the highest priority. Because it is a truthful message from a transcendent God by which you can be made right with your Creator. There are some of you here this morning who have yet to believe that message. Perhaps you have never really fully thought about it. Maybe you have never really taken the time to consider truthfulness of it. If that be your case this morning, I humbly plead with you that you let not this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday pass without sitting down and and considering seriously and deeply asking the Spirit of God to enlighten you to know and understand and to believe the truth that there is life in no one else but Jesus Christ. Beloved, I beg you, be reconciled to God. There are many others of you who have embraced this message by faith. You are part of that new humanity. Jesus Christ is the first fruit of resurrection for you. You are looking forward to life with God. It is begun now and it will only be consummated in the glorification. What is your responsibility? You have believed. Is that enough? May you simply believe and check it off on your list and go about your business. Not so. Beloved, if this is a message of priority, if the priority of this message is, is true, if it is the transcendent message from God, and it is the only means by which one can be reconciled with his creator, then you must enter into the long line of apostolic witness. It is your responsibility. It is your duty. It is your privilege. To create a, a traffic jam on the highway to hell. To tell people, They must believe. They must believe. To tell your friends, to tell your family members, to tell those that you work with, those that you go to school with, to plead with them and to say to them, let me tell you how you can be right with God. You must preach the gospel to them. Beloved, He has risen. He has risen indeed. There could be no greater message available. God bless you this morning. Let me pray. Our Father, we have gathered in this place, along with thousands of other congregations throughout the world, that we might celebrate and proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That one who was dead, that one who died at agonizing, gross and vile death upon a cross on behalf of his people. That one who was buried and whose body lay decaying in that grave, the one who was resurrected on the third day and lives forevermore, the one by whom we can be made right with you. We thank you for the chance to remember this truth, to have it re-impressed upon our hearts, and we pray, our Father, that we would not walk from this building the same, that we would be changed because of our time here. Let us not be like those who could look in a mirror and turn away and forget what they see. Let us be forever impacted by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bless now your people. We pray for His sake. Amen. Beloved, when we finish, we'll sing a song here to close. And when we finish, there is a a lighted cross over there you'll notice that there's no one on that cross. That cross is empty because the Lord Jesus Christ died, was buried, and has risen again. But if you will need or want to talk to someone about what we have spoken of today, if you are not sure in your heart that if you were to die today, if God were to say to you when you die, why should I let you into heaven and you have not an answer, then you come to that lighted cross after we sing and there will be men there to meet with you and to talk with you about how you can know Life everlasting. God bless you.